Blog Talk Radio. Quiet, please. Welcome to Rex Sykes' Movie Beat, conversations with filmmakers where we discuss everything film and television. Here on Movie Beat, you will learn what to do and what not to do when it comes to making movies and TV. We will talk to everyone behind the scenes and in front of the camera, and I'll provide you with guests and information that you're going to want to have, whether you're a filmmaker or a fan. And so now let's move behind the scenes Right here at Movie Beat, I am your host, Rex Sykes. My guest today is actor Eduardo Ballerini. We're going to be bringing him on in just a little bit. But first, I want to thank all of my listeners and readers for tuning in, for spreading the word about Movie Beat to your friends and your industry connection, and for all of your emails and all of your support and all of your phone calls. The chat room is open, so if you're listening live and you can get into the chat room, uh, go ahead and do so right now. And if you have questions for my guest, we'll try and ask them while he's on the air. Movie Beat's really designed to be a resource for you, and that is why I connect you up with professionals who are making it happen. If you go to the official website, which is rexsikes.com, that's my name, rexsikes.com, you can subscribe to the website using the RSS feed right there at the welcome page, and then you'll always be updated to new articles that are up, new cast and crew information, new events that are occurring, uh, these interviews, and so much more. So do go and subscribe to the official website. Keep in mind that if you're listening to this conversation live, you can leave comments. If you're in the chat room, you can leave comments. You can make us a favorite. You can friend us. If you're listening to this as a podcast, because you can get these at iTunes Store, then go ahead and get all the other podcasts. You can subscribe and get like over 100 interviews. And please take a moment and rate and review the show. It always helps spread the word. See, when you retweet, when you put it on Facebook, when you put it on uh, MySpace or use your favorite means to share uh, these guests, these interviews, my website, when you rate or review a show or leave a comment or make us a friend, you help further uh, the reach of Rex Sykes Movie Beat. You allow other people to find out about the show because it spreads it further and farther and wider on the Internet. So please go ahead and do that. I really do appreciate it when you support my guests and for the support you've shown to me. I appreciate that very much. And uh, all of these interviews are also archived right there at the interviews blog at Rex Sykes Movie Beat. There's bio pages. You can read about my guests. And in their bio page, is a bolded link. It'll say, listen live. If you're listening live, you can click on that. It will take you to the live interview. And after the interview airs, and it's now archived, that same bold link will now say to listen, click the bold link, and then it will take you to an archived uh, episode or an archived show. Um, just a couple of announcements. Keep in mind that uh, Julie Richardson, producer on the show, has V-Pipe Screenplay Pitch Contest by way of Facebook. Uh, that uh, ends April 15th. It's running right now on Facebook. You can find out more at the Hot and Fun blog uh, on the Movie Beat official site at RexSykes.com. Great Lakes Film Fest has the call for entries for 2010 Festival. Be sure to check that out. The Northern California Screenwriter and Filmmakers Expo is March 26th to the 28th in Napa, California, so that's coming up. You're going to want to check into that, find out who's there, who the presenters are, and then make your arrangements um, 
to go. Kevin Sorbo, Celebrity Golf, a world fit for kids. is June 10th through the 11th in Las Vegas. If you're a golfer, if you like charity, if you like kids, and uh, you like Las Vegas, any one of those, check that out at the Hot and Fun blog. Uh, and go to uh, the Hot News blog, Firestarter Films, next festival number uh, 8 is coming up March 26th in the Milwaukee area. And keep in mind that our Twitter address is Rex Sykes Movie BT. That's Rex Sykes Movie BT. The last word is abbreviated. So uh, follow us on Twitter, share, retweet, as I said. And you can become an official member of the Facebook group, Rex Sykes Movie Beat, or the fan page for, of the same name. So uh, it's Rex Sykes Movie Beat Friends on Facebook. So join us there because that also helps us get the word out. I will announce the upcoming guest later in the show at the break, so stay tuned for that. Right now, what I want to do is I'm excited, I'm thrilled to have Eduardo Barlarini on the show. He's a, a very talented actor. He's uh, recently completed filming, oh, well, a while back, actually, uh, No God, No Master. We've had Terry Green, the director on the show, Dwayne Journey, the line producer. We've had Bruce Resnick, who is the script supervisor, Sam Witwer, who Eduardo uh, co-stars with, um, and so many more are coming up. Curtis Smith will be here. He's the first AD. Um, so he, uh, he, he played opposite uh, Academy Award nominee David Stetheran, um, and in, or actually uh, David won the Academy Award, as I recall. In 2009, he was seen in The Caller with Franklin Langella, Corrado, opposite Tom Sizemore, and in the ensemble Life, in, I'm sorry, Life is Hot in Cracktown with uh, Kerry Washington and Elena Douglas. He's been called an actor to watch by Variety, a most promising actor from the L.A. Times, and a heartthrob by the Hollywood uh, Reporter. And I can attest that he's all three. I really enjoyed him in the acclaimed indie film Dinner Rush, co-starring Danny Aiello. Uh, he was in The Sopranos uh, and in Romeo Must Die. So many more things. I'm going to bring him on right now. I'm going to try. Eduardo, are you there? Hey, hey Rex. Hey, how's it going? I am doing very well. Thank you for that introduction. Uh, awesome. It, it, I, sometimes when I look back, um, I've been doing this for a little while now, and sometimes I look back and when I hear it laid out like that, I realize that I've, I've actually done a couple of things. <laughs> and you have. <laughs> you have. And also, also, let's not forget that your di- di- directorial debut is Goodnight Valentino, yes. which pre- premiered in 2003 at the Sundance Film Festival, because I'm sure we'd like to talk about that as well. Hmm. Um, so, uh, and you're busy. I mean, when I, I have up. I have been very busy, but before that, I want to thank you for having me on the show. I've been listening for a while now. I, I was listening before we actually got in touch, and I think you're doing an amazing job, and bringing on wonderful guests. And I, I really thank you for this uh, this time. Oh well, thank you. That's so kind. I appreciate that, and uh, uh, it's my pleasure. And I, you know, I'm having a blast. Uh, you know, okay. it's it's just absolutely fabulous. So, um, and you're here. And I got to tell you, I, you know, I, I have said this before, but there was something about the movie Dinner Rush and, and mm. you and the and the entire cast that that just really struck me. I mean, I watched it; I was engrossed. I loved the movie, and uh, and I've it's, and I've said it's as become much. a it's it's become a little sort of cult indie classic. Uh, it was a very small film, as you know. It was uh, it was made here in New York years ago. And uh, it didn't get a huge release here in the States. It did very well internationally, ironically. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it had a much bigger following in, uh, in England and Japan and Australia and Israel and a lot of different countries. It didn't, it didn't take uh, hold here for, for a number of years. It finally, I think, it got onto IFC 
uh, for a while, and then it started to really catch people's attention. But I am amazed at, at how often I get stopped uh, for that movie because it was a number of years ago at this point, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and how and how how much it it really sort of tapped into something about the sort of burgeoning New York restaurant scene, and it sort of combined this sort of Sopranos-esque mafia world. And it, I have to, hats off to Bob Giraldi, the director. I mean, it was really his thing from start to finish. And he made an amazing little film. And it's had such legs through the years. It's really been kind of surprising. It, it Well, I guess surprising for you, I, you know, I mean, being a part of it. But in watching it, you know, I... I so at one point, I'm not sure why I like it, but I, I think it's so, it's such a strong character-driven movie and story-driven movie. It, you know, and it's 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 intimate too. At the same time, it's it's kind of, you know, you're each. Well, the setup person, is very nice. It's it's one night in one restaurant. Yeah. Uh, and it's almost like a real-time film. You know, that it takes place over the course of maybe five hours, but it, it feels like you're uh-huh. just in there with everybody. Um, right, and it, it it really captured something, and the way we filmed it was was interesting. We were in the actual restaurant, and it was a working restaurant. So half the stuff you see is actually the guys from the restaurant like prepping dinner and stuff. So we're oh, wow. filming our we're filming our scenes as they're you know on the line chopping vegetables, and <laughs> and uh, like the the steam coming out of the pots is actually stuff being cooked for for later in the day. Because uh, wow. Bob owns the restaurant, so it was quite a, an oh. extraordinary experience. And we made the film in 18 days. It was so quick. I, when, uh, when I looked at it, I thought that had to be an incredibly kind of tight setup for everything. Yeah, it, it, it was tight and sweaty and hot, but that's why it feels authentic. You know, it was really yeah, the, the real yeah. thing happening. Yeah. No, it's, it's 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 a lovely film, and I hope more people, if they haven't seen it. Uh, take the time to, to search it out. But you've done so many other things as well, you know, that I've listed uh, here, hmm. and um, I'm not really sure which one we should talk about. What was, the, what was the No God, No Master like shooting for you in Milwaukee? Well, I, I, I had an incredible time in Milwaukee. I, I really, I loved it. I was there for about two and a half, three weeks, uh, and I thought the, the film was a, a great project. It's a worthy project. You know, sometimes you... You do things and you don't know where they're going to go or you know what place they have in in the, the sort of panorama of films being made. I thought No God No Master when I read it was an important film. It's talking about, as you know, but I'll explain it for the audience, is essentially the first domestic terrorist attack in the United States, the Wall Street bombing, um, which happened in 1919, and it follows the investigation of uh, Agent Flynn, played by David. Uh, and it leads all the way into the world of anarchy and anarchism and the Sacco and Vanzetti trial. And it's a chapter of, of American history that a lot of people don't really know about. It has incredible resonance to what's happening today. You know, we're, we're reading about these people flying their planes into buildings and showing up with assault rifles. And, you know, this, this has been going on for a while. And I do think it's important that we understand our own history when it comes to these issues. When I read the script... I thought this is a this is a really important piece to do, um, and I met Terry in Los Angeles. Terry Green, the director. Um, ironically, I met Terry on the day that I left Los Angeles. I uh, oh wow! I lived I'd lived in Los Angeles for many years and decided to come back to New York where I am now. And the day that I packed up my house, <laughs> I, I I packed up the house and then I drove to meet Terry. Um, oh wow! Kind of spe- it was kind of a special day for me. Uh-huh. Um, and and I, I really liked him. I loved this character that I played, Carlo Tresca, 
who was this Italian rabble-rousing anarchist who was, without giving away too much of the plot, was originally suspected of being behind uh, these bombings. Um, and what happened was you had the authorities uh, who were looking for somebody to lock up. You know, Their MO was essentially lock everybody up and get them out of here. Uh, Tresco was a kind of in-the-spotlight figure. He was very colorful, he was very loud, he was very vibrant, and so they went after him. I didn't know anything about Carlo Tresca before I had read this script. Uh, and then I started doing my homework, and I discovered this amazing character who's been slightly lost to history, I think, uh, a little bit behind the Sacco and Vanzetti's, who are much more famous, more household names. But in his day, he was a you know, headline of the New York Times kind of guy. Um, and he was eventually assassinated for, for his work. Um, our film doesn't go that far. Uh, but, and I started asking around, does anybody know about Carlo Tresca? Does anybody know about Carlo Tresca? And all of a sudden, these people, a lot of Italian scholars and turn-of-the-century scholars, were just, you know, came forth with information about this man. So for me, it was, I like doing my homework on characters. Um, for me, it was an extraordinary experience. And the set was amazing. Milwaukee was amazing. I, uh, I, don't, I didn't know anything about Milwaukee. I kind of showed up thinking, okay, it's going to be a small American city, and that'll be that. It's a, it's a really beautiful city. Uh, I had no idea. Uh, the whole sort of downtown is very vibrant with the river, and the architecture is wonderful, which is, I think, why we ended up filming there. It works very well. Um, but I, I, I had such a great time on all counts on that project. It was very important to me, um, and I'm very curious to see it. Oh, yes, me too, me too. Um, well, let me ask you this. Uh, as opposed to playing a contemporary character, in, in, mm -hmm. in, in, or, I mean, I'm sure you do homework in either, in, in either regard, whether it's a historical figure or, you know, a fictional character of your own creation you know you do your background and your what what goes into that for you for eduardo how do, how do you prepare but uh, it's it, you know it's different every time um it's i like playing historical characters uh i've done it twice now i did it with rudolph valentino in my film uh and carlo tresca uh in no god no master huh. i like having a, a basis of fact to start with I, I find that a good place to to begin like what did they look like uh, what did they sound like? Well, in Valentino's case, there's not much of him speaking, <laughs> although there are a couple of recordings of him singing. Uh, and uh -huh. for the record, he's an atrocious singer. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Tresca and, and you know, there were, there were transcripts of interviews with him. There were a lot of photographs, obviously. And there were interviews with other people who was this guy. I like starting with that uh, and then discovering a way to get into that with Tresca, I, I decided one day that he was an operatic figure, that he was a kind of larger-than-life guy, and so I started listening to opera a lot, which mm -hmm. is not something I normally do. Uh, but I, I would walk around New York, and I would go to the, the library on 42nd Street, and I would be listening to opera as I was reading these archival papers about him. And that was a way in to him for me. Um, and I would then try to take that and apply it to uh, my everyday life. Uh, now, it may sound a little strange, but I'll try to clarify that. In sure. that, 
I would try to walk down the street like an operatic character while listening to this music, and that was my way into Carlo Tresca. I would try to, you know, even if I was just ordering a coffee at the local deli, try to do that in, an, in a slightly operatic way. I hope that makes some sense. Um, and to try to get that in my bones and in my blood and then try to just have it be inside and not have to think about it too much. Uh, when it comes to somebody who is just a, a character that does not have a historical basis, uh -huh. you essentially have a blank page. I mean, you do have some, hopefully, some indication in the script of what this person's like, but you have a blank page as to where they can go, what they can look like. They don't necessarily have to have a certain haircut or wear certain clothes, any of that kind of stuff. Um, and from there, you, you try to play around with it a little more. You try to just, I, I like to try on different clothes. I like to go to costume shops and just try to pull things off the rack and put them on and see if they make sense, if they feel right. Um, but it's just, you, you essentially get down to the same process. You, you find what somebody looks like, what somebody sounds like, what somebody moves like. Uh, it's just your starting point is a little different. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, with, with a fictional character or with e even a historical character who you can only see in photographs, you've got, you got an idea of his carriage, you know, or mm -hmm. his, his sure. body type, but you don't actually get to see him move or hear him speak. Uh, but with a historical character like Rudolph Valentino, Sure. You had, you know, visual movies you could see. There's some, you know, Absolutely. Uh, you know, press clipping, you know, studio sure. silent things that you could watch where he's not being the chic, but he's being, right. you know. You know right. um, so and how does that work for you? Because now you have to, now you have to more or less try to, did you try and mirror some of the stuff that you witnessed? You know? Yeah, that's, a, that's actually, you kind of nailed it. Um, with Valentino, obviously, there are a lot of films. Um and then there are some almost like home movies. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I found that the, the home movies were more instructive, um, that what he was like and how he moved when he wasn't on set, uh, when he uh -huh. wasn't essentially performing. Uh, in his case, even from the home movies, you get the sense that he was always kind of performing. Um, but there was something a little different about it. And I thought, well, that's more the man and not the character. Uh, my piece essentially uh, discussed uh, Valentino at the end of his life, about a week before he died, uh, and he was, he was a very battered man. Uh, and I thought, you know, to have him sort of come on like some, you know, as you say, some sort of chic-like figure uh -huh. fresh off his steed riding through the desert isn't going to make much sense. I mean, here's a guy who's really... His shoulders are hunched. His head is down. You know, he's he's not well. Uh, no. And so I, I really looked at, at those uh, those little home movies. There were also some stills uh, that were taken by his wife when he had been exiled from Hollywood. The Valentino story is fascinating. We could talk about that for hours. Um, and but there were some perhaps stills. Perhaps we'll come back and do that. That would be fun. And I would I would love to do that uh, yeah, because yeah. I actually have a, a feature that I've I've written and now we're talking to some people, so it might actually happen. Um, Good. Let's let's do that. Yeah, um, but there were some stills when he was exiled from from Hollywood. He was banned from Hollywood. It's a fascinating story for breach of contract because he refused to do the uh, the you know the lousy action movies that they were giving him. Uh, and he and his wife, who was a, a very driven woman, who was essentially the woman behind the man, 
said, we're not doing this. And as soon as he said that, they said, fine, you're fired, and you can no longer work in Hollywood. Get out. Uh, you know, the studio system had all the power. Right. So he, they, they left. They ended up in the Adirondacks for a summer, and there are these pictures of him there where he's just absolutely crushed and defeated and lost. And so I tried to base my character off of that more than anything. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Now, he died of uh, peritonitis, didn't he, and a ruptured appendix? Yeah, very good, very good. I mean, essentially, he died of stress, you know. I mean, he was a young man. He was only 31 right. years old. And uh, he got an ulcer that burst. And probably had it happened today, they would have rushed him to the hospital. He would have been fine. But medicine being what it was back then, there was there was no safety. Right. Uh, right. But, you know, he was a healthy young man. Uh, and he essentially stressed himself to death over being who he was. Uh, it was a very, very difficult existence. So it's, it's a so great story. It is a great story. And and um, can can people find Goodnight Valentino? Is it- uh, yes. You know, I, I'm almost embarrassed to say it's on a couple of sites streaming, um, and I can't remember which one they are now. Uh, one, I believe, is IndieFlix.com. Uh, uh, I believe it's there. It can also be ordered as a DVD, uh, the short cool, that I cool. made. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, well, and yeah. and if not, they can if they don't remember, they can search "Goodnight Valentino," I assume, and uh, and they can easily find me on EduardoBallerini.com. So and there you go. And I wanted you to give out your website. You also write a blog, so I do, um, I do. I try to I great. try to write a blog about the actor's existence, essentially, uh-huh. uh, of what it's like to uh, to make our way in this. And it's a very challenging profession, uh, and some of the, the things that we encounter on a daily basis. Uh, and so I've tried to to, to keep a, a fairly regular blog about my existence, hoping that it's uh, instructive for others. It is. And, and would you give your blog address? Uh, yeah, it's uh, eduardoballerini.com slash blog. So. There you go, folks. <laughs> there you go. Folks. I, and I look at it, and and you put up some great quotes too. And you you when you're on Twitter, and you put up quotes, and you know what I do? I actually cut and paste your quotes, and I and I paste them into letters to my daughter because I always send her little quotes. <laughs> that, and so that, she's she's getting that's, quotes that's indirectly. Wonderful. You know, yeah, yeah. That that is um, wonderful. Uh, let me ask you this, and it's it's maybe not fair in the way I'm going to set this up. But a number of years ago, I, I I was had the good fortune of being with Robert Downey Jr. and and I asked him about his work in Chaplin, and I said pretty much this same question. And I and I guess I will ask you in, in that regard, like with Valentino, I said, you know, mm-hmm. with Chaplin, inside out, outside in, and and he got the question was it was it the you know you put on the clothes, you become Chaplin, or do right. you? And his answer was obviously when I did the chaplain on the screen, putting on the little tramp cuff, you know, counted for mm-hmm. everything and helped me. But when I had to do chaplain the man, he mm-hmm. said that's when I felt like I like I channeled him, like you know that there was a deeper right. kind of thing. Right. And so, so I ask you the same essential question. I mean, you know, right. I, we're getting glimmers into your process and, and, and or glimpses sure. into your process, and, and um, interesting. Is there, in fact, there's a scene in Chaplin, I believe, where. Uh, the chaplain, well, Downey Jr., essentially walks into a costume shop and finds some tattered shoes and a cane and a hat and puts them on. So the movie was suggesting outside in, I guess. Um, uh-huh. I don't know that that's fair, to what happened to Chaplin, uh, or right, if right. that's how uh, Downey Jr. came up with it. Uh, my answer is uh, I'm, I'm going to take the cheap way out. I'm going to say both. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, with Valentino, it was interesting. I, as I was prepping for the shoot, I walked into a thrift store in 
in L.A., and they had a, a vintage tuxedo. Uh-huh. Which were, it was sort of an act of fate. It was, it was right there on the rack as I walked in. And they had this 1920s tuxedo, which fit me perfectly. It was as if it had been tailored for me. Mm-hmm. So naturally, I bought it. We used it for the film. I still have it. Um, and when I put it on, I kind of understood the, the man and the time. Uh, and there was a very much of an outside-in thing that happened there. Um, I remember also I did a photo test. And we took a still of, of Rudy, and we tried to match it, the lighting, the, the makeup, the clothes, everything. And I remember, you know, when the makeup artist came and, and flicked back my hair, that I kind of saw it for the first time. Uh, so there was very much an outside-in process that happened there. Uh-huh. That being said, you know, once that happened, then there was very much an inside-out uh, process of trying to, as you always do with characters, uh, at least from the, the schools that I come from, is you try to substitute something from your own life uh, and bring that to the character. Uh, I studied at uh, Strasbourg, uh, sure. and, uh, and now I'm studying with um, Austin Pendleton over at uh, uh-huh. HB Studios. Uh, he was one of Uta Hagen's sort of disciples. Um, and there's very much a process of finding something within yourself and bringing it to the character. Um, so I had to find things, and I won't, you know, reveal those. Uh, sure, sure. But, uh, but I found things within my own life that very much made sense in terms of what uh, Valentina was going through. Same thing with Tresca, actually. Uh, uh-huh. Tresca, who was into politics uh, and union politics specifically, you know, part of what they were doing was organizing unions, which is why they got their heads bashed in all the time. Um, Ouch. I, you know, had some, you know, very different, mind you, but experience with union politics with the Screen Actors Guild when I ran for the board a couple of years ago. And I got a glimpse into, you know, unions, uh, sort of, uh, you know, workers versus management, essentially, and what union does to represent people and how management views unions and the the inherent conflict therein. Uh, And so I was able to bring some of that to to Tresca. Um, But you're always looking for something that you have in your life that obviously it's not going to be the same thing, it's not going to be identical, but that you can bring to the character. It becomes especially tricky. I was working on a piece uh, just for for a class I was taking. I was working on a piece from a play called Rabbit Hole, uh, which is an extraordinary piece, but it's about these parents that lost their child. Um, Now, that is something that I have never experienced and hope that I never experience. It sounds like one of the most horrific things you can imagine. So you ask yourself, what can I possibly bring to substitute that? Um, But you you look for something which represents loss in your life, a devastating loss, and you bring that. Um, That was a long-winded way of of saying that the uh, inside-out process happens with a – it starts with a substitution. Well, I, I, I appreciate that. I think it's great, and, and uh, I think it was well-spoken. Um, you know, uh, I will comment on a couple of things. One is it's a very eye-opening experience to be involved in politics of 
any form. Mm. I mean, sure. <laughs> union, or when we fought the governor for the incentives. I mean, it's just yeah. It's you do a lot of that, don't you? Yeah, you're involved <laughs> with that. Yeah, it's a, it's it's a, it's an eye-opening world, a very different world about what goes on. But um, in the world of neurophysiology, and I know that you are a, a, a mm-hmm. conscious person and enlightened person, it's, it, it, there's an interesting thing, and that is, you know, it's if you can believe it you can behave it. So if you believe that you're confident, you may stand confident, you know, and you can put your chest out and your chin. But the reverse is true as well. If you stand confident and you put your chest out and you put your chin up, you tend to believe confident. So, you know, the mind and the body mirror or affect each other. And so inside out, outside in, Mm -hmm. you know, it has a very real... um, Absolutely. ...real basis in in science, so... Sure. And, you know, one of the things... uh, that actors often do is they try to figure out, for example, like how a character walks and moves. Right. Uh, and that may be different from their own uh, habits. And there's something very real that happens uh, in the physiology uh, that it makes you feel like a certain person. You're absolutely right. You know, if you were playing a, uh, a, you know, a hyper-depressive, and this is an easy example, Mm-hmm. And you walked around, you know, slumped and and just slouching everywhere and mumbling your words, and you know, you would start to feel like one of these people who doesn't want to be open to the world and can't communicate. Uh, if you're playing, you know, General Patton, you're probably going to stand tall and sort of always be flexed, and that will give you a different feeling. But you're absolutely right. A lot of the science that's happening now. Um, it, which, which I'm very interested in, as, as you mentioned, has a lot to do with my profession um, and how we can create characters and, of course, how we can you know, create ourselves in our own lives. Well, but it works, it works right. in both ways. Right, and, and, and what we've just done you know, in, in describing this has, has been in a, in a very cursory way because there's, there's certainly more to it. But people can write in their own home Try that on, and you know, if sure. they commit to it, they actually stand to it, or they stand slouch and they put their head down and they sigh a lot and breathe shallow. They can experience those emotional changes sure. for themselves and have a sense of what it's like. So, if there's an actor out there, or a person who's, or even if a person's feeling down, they can try yeah. and you know feel a little bit sure. better. Um, you know, I, 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 I mean, we're only giving kind of cursory lip service to it, but but at the same time, um, it is. Well, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you one funny example, and then we'll move on. Is that um, when I came back to New York um, and I was sort of reintroducing myself to the New York scene uh, because I hadn't been here in years and I wanted to, to start get back into meeting people and saying hello to people, I remembered one day I was walking down a hall. I had a meeting. I can't remember exactly where I was. but And I thought, okay, and I was, I was a bit tired and I was a bit, you know, sort of, I was thinking about a hundred things. And I had this moment where I said, you know what I should do right now is I should kind of strut my way down this hall. Mm. I'm just going to kind of, you know, like John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever or something, just kind of strut my way down this hall. And I remember by the time I got to the end of the hall that I felt like a very different person. Uh, And there was Uh something about the act of doing that which made me feel very confident. Uh, So it's a very real practice. Um, Oh, very true. Anyway, uh, you you were about to ask something else. 
No, I was going to say, uh, yes, I, I, I want to follow up. I'm going to take a short break here, and mm-hmm. then we're going to come back with more. So you're listening to Eduardo Ballerini on uh, Rex Sykes Movie Beat. The official website is rexsykes.com. That's my name. And I want to uh, mention some of my upcoming guests. The next guest is John Paul Rice. He's a producer. His movie One Hour Fantasy Girl uh, is out and available. Colleen Neistat is the CEO and founder of a great new tool for movie producers uh, called Movie Set, and we're going to have her on right after that. Sam Oster is the uh, writer, director, cameraman. He was on with Sam Witwer, who co-stars in No God, No Masters with Eduardo. He will be back. Rocky Lang uh, is the son of Jennings Lang, the producer. He's the author, producer, director. He produced White Squall, starring Jeff Bridges. Nick Mancuso will be back. Patrick Giraldi is post-production sound supervisor and recording mixer. Terry Green, the director of No God, No Master, who we've talked about now. Uh, we'll be coming back. Danielle Eskenazi, who was mentioned today, too, will be back. Uva Bull, producer, director, and John Cowley is the visual effects supervisor of uh, movies like District 9 and uh, the new Eclipse movie. Uh, that will round out um, March, and we've got more guests in April and May and June and, and all sorts coming up. So be sure to stay tuned. And now right back with Eduardo. Thanks for being patient there, my friend. Absolutely, um, and I have to say once again, you know, the work that you're doing is is quite extraordinary. When I hear the list of guests you have and the number of shows that you're doing, I, I really I tip my hat to you because it's a, it's not easy to do these things. So congratulations to you. Well, I I appreciate it. I'm always I'm always looking for people who who want to help. I mean, you know, in in the, in the sense that I, I'm looking for you know blog writers or attaching blogs or things to the website because um, it it is uh, almost more than I can handle trying to get articles and stuff. By the way, I should say that Peter Graves has passed away, and so has Merlin Olson, and and our hearts and our respects go out to these two gentlemen. And I thought about that today. I thought, you know, I didn't put anything up on the website, you know, and I sometimes do and I sometimes don't. But I I did want to make sure that I mention. Um, uh, them and their contributions. Merlin Olson was on Little House on the Prairie, and Peter Graves, of course, uh, is most famous for uh, probably Mission Impossible. But I remember him as a kid from Fury. So uh, there you have it. I, I remember from, from Airplane. Airplane, so. right. right. Um, so um, I was going to ask you... Um, I was talking with Eric Morris the other day, and Eric was an acting coach of mine, one mm-hmm. of one of many, but very influential in my life. And he's he's numerous books, but but I've I've become convinced that what's required for actors, you know, is this on-off switch. And the and I say that I mean you know, and I think Eric was like, well, it's not an actual switch, and I'm like, no, you know, it isn't. But 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 it, the the notion is that, like I said, you know, you're interested in consciousness and and you know, enlightened and and, and living your life. I mean. Most people don't want to be caught up in a character, especially if they're playing a, a very troubled right. character, and have that and have that overspill into their life. That you know you have right. to be able to leave it on the set. And maybe right. you're in character all day long, but if you're in character for 12, 15, 18 hours a day, and that's spread out over 10, 20, 18 days, you know, I mean, that can yeah. be pretty devastating. So, do you have a clearing method or something that you use to stay balanced? And- you know, it's an interesting question because there are times that you come off a set if you've do- been doing something particularly intense uh, that is very hard to let go of. Um, if you've been doing something uh, either emotional or perhaps violent, um, that when you go home, you still kind of feel it. Your, your, your skin is still tingling a bit. Uh, I I believe that it is healthiest to leave it on the set. Um, there are actors who have sort of famously for years sort of stayed in character all day, all night, for yeah. months. Um, I think that's exhausting. 
um, you know, and God bless them that they have the energy to do that. I don't know that I could. I think it's really draining. Um, but more than that is that we do have to recognize that you know we are playing a character, right. uh, and that it is separate from our lives. And when we go home to our, our houses and families and friends and all of that, that what we've done at work should probably be left at work. It's not always easy, as I say. I think technique has a lot to do with it. Um, I think, uh, it, like anything else, it is a practice. Uh, and if you have done your homework, this is probably the point that should be made. If you have done your homework about a character, if you know what they sound like, if you know what they look like, what they move like, what they think, all of that, then it should probably be fairly easy to turn that on and off. Right. I think if you've not done that, then you're constantly searching. And I'm not trying to suggest that these guys who stayed in character forever had not done their homework. They just have a slightly different method. But some people who don't have this technique of preparation down as well may be caught in that. And if they are caught in that, I would suggest to them that they do more preparation, uh, that they, they might find it easier to, uh, to turn it on and off. The other thing to, to remember is that you know, people forget that you know, film, especially, and television, of course, is a very technical medium. It's mm-hmm. different from a play where curtain goes up and you're out there for a couple of hours and you get to kind of work through it and, uh, at your own pace, essentially. Film and television is you have to learn how to turn things on and off because there are going to be times when you're going to be sitting in your trailer for three hours because they're setting up a shot, and then they call you onto set, and all of a sudden you realize that it's a madhouse because the sun is going down, and they got to oh, get right. this thing, and, then, and they got to get this thing in the next two minutes, and you have to do it now, you know, and that's your only chance to do it. Um, well, you know, I, I'm enormously proud of one, well, a few things in my career, but one day especially we were shooting on on Sopranos and. It was a scene, it was a kind of important scene for the episode. Uh, we were in a, a car, and it was about uh, Michael Imperioli's character, Christopher. Uh, and it was a drug thing that was happening. And we were caught in an absolute you know, monsoon. The water was coming so fast that they kept having to move the car. We were in a parking lot because the water was coming wow. up. It, it was insane. I, I've, I've never seen water like that. It was biblical. And <laughs> I remember we were... We were our holding area, classic for The Sopranos, was this strip club. Uh, it was closed for the day, but there we were sitting in this strip club while it's pouring outside, waiting to go out into this car. You know, the crew was miserable. They were soaked like rats. They'd been at it for 12 hours. Nobody really wanted to be there at this point, and yet we had this important scene to do. And I, we dashed out into the car, and it was obvious that we were going to get one shot at this. We were not going to stay there for very long. And we did it. You know, I, I think on my coverage, I think I got one take uh, in my close-up. Um, and I remembered thinking, I, I have to do it now. There is no, oh, can I have another, or oh, can we come back and do this tomorrow? And I was very proud of, you know, my sort of awareness of the moment and my ability to deliver it. But a lot of it rested on the technique and that, that I had prepared this character before, you know, it was the the day before and the days before that that I had spent studying what I was going to do. So when it came time to doing it, it was fairly automatic. Um, So, 
you have to, I think you have to have that in order to turn it on and off. Because uh, that's kind of the nature of the business. Auditions are the same way. You don't know how long you're going to be sitting in that waiting area. And then they're going to call you in and you're going to say hello and you know chat for a couple of minutes. And then you're going to have to perform. And it's going to have to happen right then. Uh, and you, you have to have that ability. Well, that, that, that's excellent. I mean, I appreciate the answer, and it it makes me think. And and I, I in all fairness, I mean, I've thought this before, but it, it but it, it ties into thoughts that I've had, and that is that what what I think people don't seem to appreciate is that acting in in many ways is no different than an Olympic athlete. If if you're right. well trained and you have sure. technique. You have a mindset, you have a, a physiology that supports you in that. You mm-hmm. get out, you do your performance, and when it's over, you got to walk away regardless of the outcome. You know, you yeah. can't, you know, you can't, sure. you know, and if more people thought that way and thought less in terms of being a tormented star because they're dealing with emotions. <laughs> right. But, you know, but yes, realize unfortunately, that... They, unfortunately, the profession is a magnet for, for tormented people. Um, <laughs> well, that's true, too. That's true, too. Right. And... Um, and um, uh, I, I use myself as a prime example, but uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think I think that we could turn it off. And, and and again, you know, we talked about it a little bit earlier with just the physio- physiological changes. You know, if if you you know a person were to get offset and then immediately shift their physiology and breathe different and walk different and, and sure. you know do that that give them the potential of a way out as opposed to you know going yes. off and sitting in the corner with the same. Uh, caricature and sure. anyway, um, you know, you've been, this has been a, a very fascinating and instructive conversation um, with you on this. Um, we've got a lot of things I want to talk with you. I know you're mm-hmm. going to come back. We're going to talk about Valentino. We can do a whole show on that, but I'd like you to come back because I want to talk to you about working with directors and creating I would love know, to. Cal- uh, collaboration. Talk about uh, you know not just Valentino, but but you directing uh, you know mm-hmm. your short. And, Creating your own projects, but we got some. But and working with agents and managers, because all of this is very important stuff for all of us to listen to. Sure. But but we've kind of touched on it. We've got about fifteen minutes, sixteen minutes left. Um, why don't we discuss life on the set? Now I know it's okay. going to differ from different things, but since we've talked about uh, you know being in the in the restaurant or or mm-hmm. you know being in, on the Sopranos, maybe maybe we can address some of the uh, what's the life on the set like in, sure. in its various manifestations. I, I happen to be somebody who loves being on, on set. Uh, I, I really enjoy it. I, I enjoy the, the camaraderie of it. I like getting to know uh, the crew and uh, the other the other actors. There's always a sadness that, that comes when it when it ends. Uh, you know, people that you've bonded with over the course of weeks or months that you then say goodbye to. Um, but life on a set is, um, I think, somebody that I once worked with likened it to kind of like a military operation. Uh, I've never been in the army, uh, and I've never been on a military base, but I can I can sort of understand the analogy that there are a lot of moving parts uh, that all have to come together. Uh, and I think one of the most, speaking of sort of mindfulness and consciousness, is one of the most important things is to understand that there are a lot of things happening on a set, and you as an actor, while you yes may be the focal point uh, when it comes to shooting your scenes, you're actually just one of many parts. That's happening, uh, and it's. I think it's very important to to understand the the bigger the bird's eye view of what a set is. That there is there's a lot of production happening. There's a lot of technical stuff happening. You know, be it from you know grip and electric down to sound to the camera department. 
there's probably a lot of creative stuff happening that you don't know about. There's writers off in the corner trying to rewrite some lines. Uh, there's a director trying to figure out how this scene is going to cut into the next one. Um, and you, as an actor, have a job to do within that. Um, this kind of touches a little bit on working with directors, which maybe we can talk about later. Sure. Um, but, you know, they're, they're, there's a lot happening on the set, and I think that an actor's part of it, uh, an actor's job in it is to, to, again, I'm going to repeat myself a little bit, but be prepared and able to turn it on and off uh, at a moment's notice, but also to understand that there are a lot of things going on that are going to affect each other. There's a kind of interdependence that happens. Um, and sets can get, uh, they can get testy, you know, uh, tempers can flare, people get tired and frustrated. Uh, they can get goofy and silly. Uh, it, it's a kind of like a microcosm of, a, of, a, of any sort of aspect of life. Um, I enjoy them immensely. I, I really like my time on them. I, I recognize also that on the acting side of things that I have a slightly cushier time on a set in that a lot of it is, is geared towards you know, making me comfortable uh, and making sure that I'm okay. Uh, so there's probably a certain, you know, we like a certain amount of the, the pampering that goes on. Uh, mm -hmm. We get a nice room and, the, you know, people make sure we have food and water and they take us into this other place and they make us look pretty and then they bring us out and everybody's asking us if we're okay and, you know. Um, I, I try to be of the mind that it, that same thing is important for everybody there uh, and it doesn't matter what department they're in or how big or small they are. I've seen actors, and I'm embarrassed to say it, who who, who treat people badly on sets, uh -huh. uh, uh, which is just inexcusable to my mind. Um, but life on a set generally is kind of a fun place to be. It's a little fantastical. It's a it's a little sort of wonderlandish, uh, and uh, you know maybe that's why actors are hanging on to their characters. They want to. <laughs> That. They don't. They don't actually want to go home and pay bills. <laughs> they want to live on the set for a while. Right. It is a magical place. Let me ask you this. I haven't. I haven't actually gotten to ask anybody this, but let, and, I, and I've always wanted to. But let me. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you. What do you now know or experience differently, having been on this at numerous times, from the first? job you got when you walked onto a set what what's the difference what was the wow that's that's a great question i think that the difference uh is that the first time i walked onto a set i was on my first job was on law and order uh and i i played an autistic kid which was mm -hmm. not an easy part for a first job um, <laughs> no yeah and i i remembered walking onto the set and having absolutely no idea who anybody was or how anything worked. Um, and I think, for example, uh, you know, now, years later, when I walk onto a set, there's a certain familiarity about it. It's a bit like, I, I would imagine business travelers get this sensation that when they walk into a hotel room, they kind of know everything about the hotel room. They know what's in the fridge. They know, you know, where to plug in their phone. They know, you know, where to leave the towel so that they'll get fresh ones the next day. They, there's a familiarity with it. Now, the first time you ever walked into a hotel room as a business traveler, you probably, 
you know, didn't know where you were exactly or, you know, how you turned on the remote or how you ordered a, a movie or something. Um, but now there's a familiarity with it. I can very quickly scan a set and know who everybody is. Uh, and I think that's the biggest difference. And I, I will say that it, it makes it a lot more comfortable. Uh, it makes it a lot easier. You're not distracted by so much that you can just step in and do your job. Um, so that's probably the biggest difference is familiarity. And what about the, all the technical aspects of, of filming? You know, when people think of acting, they, they think... Sure. You know, oh, that's a, actually, that's a, that, yeah, it's an extension of what I was just saying. But, yeah, there's a lot of lingo that you have to learn, um, which I remember, you know, there was kind of a steep learning curve when, you know, I was fortunate enough that some of my first jobs were sort of professional big things. They weren't necessarily student films where nobody uh-huh. knew what was going on. You know, Law & Order, obviously, is a very well-run machine, um, okay. I had some very small parts in early films, like I shot Andy Warhol and uh, the Paul Bear. I'm not Rappaport. I mean, I had tiny little parts, but these were, you know, these were professional sets. And so, uh, you know, people were tossing around the terminology that I didn't understand. Uh, and so, yeah, there was a lot of the confusion on my part there. But again, it's an it's an extension of the same idea of just being familiar with how things work um, and learning how to work with a camera is is important. Um, I think that's a, a kind of an art that, that a lot of actors uh, don't really know about. Uh, there's a way to, to work with a camera. You know, and there, there are many classes about this that are probably worth looking into. Is it possible to discuss some of that? Well, there's, there's it something... itself to talking as, a, as opposed to doing? I mean, some things are, are hard to, are much harder to... It's like it's harder to explain sure. how do people click on a link at my website than to just go and do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, there's, you know, there's probably a fair amount of doing that has to happen there, but there, there are things like knowing, you know, what a camera is doing when it dollies in or dollies out, you know, what a steady cam is doing and your relation to it, how, you know... You know, asking what lens they're on if they're shooting across the room because they you might think they're 20 feet away, but actually it's a close-up. Um, you know, uh, knowing what kind of space you have around you, uh, knowing about you know the frame is very important if you have props to work with so that you can bring them up so that they're seen properly. It may feel awkward to you, like why am I holding this pen next to my ear? But that actually makes right. sense. It actually makes sense visually. Uh, but even though it's something you'd never do in real life, um, walking, uh, it, it, these are, you know, it, again, it's a lot of doing, but sometimes you have to walk over tracks and cables, and you're supposed to just be walking down the street, you know, so there are ways. <laughs> it's the Ministry of Funny Walks, I guess, at that point. Um, <laughs> right. Where you have to you keep your upper, your upper body still while your lower body is doing something else. But these, right. are, these right. are sort of technical things that you have to learn um, while making it all very natural. Uh, right. If there are camera moves, it's very important to learn how to work with marks uh, because, you know, the focal points are critical. Uh, and, you know, there's sometimes people just kind of say, well, I'm generally in my mark area. Well, that's not that's not good enough. Right. You really have to put your toes on the tape, you know. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of that. Well, and lighting and knowing where your light is, I suppose. Oh, yeah. You always hear about these old actresses like the Greta Garbos who would essentially tell the, you know, the, uh, what do they call them back then? The juicer, I think. Yeah, now now they're gaffers, but they used to be called juicers. 
uh, would tell the juicer where to put the light, where to put the flags, and you know she knew exactly how to get that cheap lit pop. Yeah, <laughs> and sure, I mean there's a certain amount of that. You know, you, as, as narcissistic as it sounds, you probably want to learn what angles are flattering for you, and right, right. Uh, you know where you look best. And if that means you have to tilt your head a certain way, uh, you might want to learn what that is. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of technical stuff that goes on. And experience is really the only way to to get it. Uh, yeah, and in blocking, I mean, people probably never stand that close in real life unless they're in an intimate relationship. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, there's yeah. nose-to-nose stuff that you don't typically do, you know. Yeah, but, uh, yeah one of my fighting. favorites is when they ask you sometimes to, if you're walking out of a room, They'll ask you to sort of banana left, they'll call it, which means right. sort of walk right. a little arc, you know, as you know. And you're thinking, why would I ever walk in this <laughs> strange <laughs> semicircle to get to that door, which is straight ahead of me? But on camera, it looks a certain way. You yeah, know, it looks right, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now, there's, there, there are there's a lot of good things. I mean, that's that's great. I, I'm glad you know, you're, you're taking us through that because, you know, I, there are a couple things that that bother me today, and I mean, and and I'm not so sure, and I want to ask you about it. But one is, I you know, I always tell people if you if you if you're in a hospital scene, fight to have a pillow to prop your head up so that they don't shoot from your feet up your nose. Right. Is, I see this right. all the time. They're just shooting up the nostrils of the actor or yeah. actress, and I go, I don't yeah. want to go there. You know, I, I you know, there, right. there are more flattering shots. Sure. Um, but uh, well, you actually touch on uh, a very interesting point there because you could argue that that is the you know cinematographer and director's purview to, mm-hmm. to make sure that they have a flattering shot, and yet you know there is a certain amount of you have to protect yourself, yeah. uh, in that you know God bless cinematographers, but they may just think well this is a great shot because it's got these big feet in the foreground and it, you know it kind of goes soft focus on the back and I really like it and they're not really thinking about your nostrils. Meanwhile, you're the person lying in bed, and you're just a big pair of nostrils. Um, so you have, you have to, you do have to think about these things. And now, I, I I will say that, you know, I think it's best to do these things collaboratively. Um, that is that I wouldn't just go off and grab a pillow and shove it under your head. Uh, um, well, sometimes people do. You'd be surprised. Um, it's sort of the living in oblivion kind of thing. Uh, but. You know, you, you do want to say to somebody, uh, you know, I, I'd like to have this. And you might want to, you know, tell them your reasons. Uh, as for, you, know, you might want to make up a different reason. You might want to say I'm more comfortable and it's easier for me to speak. I don't know, whatever it is. Um, but right. I can't talk unless I'm at a 90, you know, at a 40 yeah. degree angle. <laughs> I can't I, talk I, unless I'm lit from the left and you're shooting me with an 80. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> No, good, good, good suggestions, good advice. We actually have about three minutes now. Okay. And I, I don't want to give you the closing remarks to, to really kind of talk about anything you want to talk about. But I, I, I said there were a couple of things, and one of them is is today's framing, and in, in many cases is is you know pretty liberally whatever it is. I mean, there mm-hmm. are shots of people where they've got you know from you know below the eyes down to the chin inside a mm-hmm. close up, or people you yeah. know move and they go out of out of frame where in in older Bruckheimer times, you know, you were, up, yeah. yeah, you were more, you know, you would say, where am I framed? And you'd know not mm-hmm. to move and not to move out right. of frame. Do you find much of that today? I mean, it, it, you're yes. just kind of like, uh, tele- go ahead. Television, television especially, uh, and I think it'll start to creep into film. The reason that this is happening is because of the, the way we watch content. Um, 
you know, I read an interview with Dick Wolf, a legendary producer of all the Law and Orders, uh, where he said explicitly we're going to start shooting more close-ups because people are watching our shows on their iPhones. Um, uh-huh. you know, and that's a big part of it. Uh, you know, the fact is that people are watching content on smaller screens now. If you think about the history of this, you know, originally you'd have to go to a, a cinema palace and you'd watch it on an enormous screen in this beautiful building. And there are still large screens out there, but even cinemas now, for the most part, have smaller screens than we've ever had. Right. Uh, people are watching on televisions, which are obviously smaller, although they're getting bigger again. Um, computer screens, uh, mobile phones, uh, YouTube, whatever it is, you know, that the delivery of it has changed such that uh, the the shops have had to change, um, and that's just you know there's there's you can you know we can sort of complain about it or we can just say that that's kind of the reality of how things are going right now. It, it may switch again if the technology shows up where everybody has a projector and all of a sudden they're using their wall. Uh-huh. as their screen. I, I don't know. I'm just kind of making that up. But um, I think no, that's the possible. reason for it. Yeah. Well, it, it's possible. And it's interesting that, that, that Dick Wolf would say that because historically TV has more close-ups than film anyway because it's a smaller Sure. Well, screen. they were always on a smaller screen, yeah. Right. yeah. Uh, but he was saying uh, that they're going to go even further. And just, even, you know, even further. That is amazing. Further. Listen, I said I was going to give you the last couple minutes, and I want to, but somebody also also asked a question. It says, Eduardo, you have a very impressive IMDb. You've got some writing, producing, directing credits in mid-2000s. Will we see more of this from you, and did it age you as an actor? So, in the, a, writing, the writing, producing? Is that, is that what the question is? Um, writing, producing, directing. Yeah, credits, yeah, no, but, yeah, yeah. I would. Um, I have not done uh, any directing in a while. Uh, I have been doing some writing. I have a, a few projects that are out there kicking around, uh, which I can't say too much about uh, for superstitious sure. reasons. Um, I understand. But um, yes, actually, one, speaking of technology, uh, one of the things that's really become clear, and this would uh, it speaks to a bigger point, is that you know we can make things now. Uh, for very little, um, mm-hmm. you know, they may not look like big Hollywood movies, but the um, actors, especially, I think, need to be in charge of their of, of making things and creating their own content. Um, and I would, I, I would very much like to uh, to get back to a few things. And what I'm trying to do now is, and you know, other actors might want to try to do similar things. Is I'm trying to find projects that are contained that can be done simply. Uh, there's this kind of movement now, I guess they're calling it mumblecore films, uh, these sort of indie films which are made very simply, um, mm-hmm. f- very few characters, very few locations. Uh, and their budgets can range from you know, $5 to $500,000, but right. you can essentially make these things for very little. Um, and I think uh, I would like to start doing that again now that I'm back in New York and have my feet on the ground. Um, and I think other actors uh, should be as well. It's making it awfully crowded out there in the marketplace. Um, but you know, then again, there is a big difference between those who say and those who do. Uh, and True. If, you know, I spent a long time in Hollywood, and I got to tell you, everybody had a script under their arm that they'd written, but very few had actually made anything. Uh, and there was, there, was, there was a big divide between those who just were talking about the projects and those who made them. Um, I have made a couple of things. I've been involved in production on a couple of things. 
Um, and yes, I would like to get back to more of that. I think it's very important. Awesome. Let me say we've got about 60 seconds left, so I'm going to have to say we're out of time and and okay. and so long. But this has been fascinating. We're going to have you back. And so listeners, readers, to stay in tune is eduardoballerini.com. Go visit. And uh, this has been a fascinating time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, we'll be talking. We'll Oh, you bet we'll set it up and uh, we'll let everyone know when Eduardo's going to be back. And, and meanwhile, check him out on the Internet and, uh, and all of his offerings. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. And you've been listening to RexSykes.com at the Rex Sykes Movie Beat. Uh, keep in mind, I've got lots of great guests coming up. John Paul Rice will be next. He's going to be talking about his movie, uh, One Hour Fantasy Girl, that she produced. You can become a member of Rex Sykes Movie Beat Facebook group or the fan page by clicking on those links at my profile page. Oh, and go follow Eduardo on Twitter and on Facebook as well. And uh, everybody, have a fabulous day. Make your movie a complete project. Until we meet the next time, that's a wrap.